Good morning and welcome to Catechesis. Uh, as you know from our posters, we're doing a series on the Litany of the Saints and our, our, our saints this week are um, Abraham and Sarah, but I would like to introduce our teacher who I've known for a very long time. Um, so Ed Coleman moved here two years ago um, from outside Philadelphia where, uh, where I grew up and he taught at Eastern University as social work professor for um, I think about 40 years. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Um, and my parents just had their um, 56th wedding anniversary. They have been on a journey together um, in marriage and have been on a parenting journey together for over 50 years. And um, more importantly, um, my dad has been on a journey with God for uh, since 1939 when um, his parents started bringing him to church. So he's going to tell you a little bit more today about um, about journeying with God and toward God. And um, I'd like you to welcome my dad, Ed Coleman. It's sort of like uh, coming to your own funeral and having nice things be said about you. <laughs> Good morning. Feel free to uh, get coffee if you uh, need to. Uh, we're hopefully going to be a well-caffeinated group this morning. Uh, does everybody have a handout? The handouts, some of the slides are going to be a little bit difficult to read and very difficult from over here. So a handout is important because it's a replication of the, of the PowerPoint slides. Uh, let's begin by reciting together the first portion of the All Saints Litany from the screen or from your handout. Together, for Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in faith, and all who journey into the unknown, trusting God's promises, thanks be to God. The litany is reminiscent of the catalog of heroes of faith found in the 11th chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews. Quote, by faith, Abraham obeyed God when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Heroes indeed, but it all seems so perfect, so unattainable by mere mortals. As followers of Jesus, what we can learn from Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in faith, is that the Christian life is a journey. And regardless of how often or how deeply we believe we know where we are going and how we are going to get there, the journey is always, by definition, into the unknown. And in order to get to the end of the journey successfully, and I enclose this in quotation marks because success has so many different definitions. We must trust the promises of God. 
I thought of entitling this Sarah, Abraham and Sarah's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong about that, but it occurred to me that half the congregation might be too young to appreciate the popular culture reference, and the other half might not appreciate my seeming to make light of a serious subject. And besides, although Abraham and Sarah's journey was indeed adventurous, parts of it were considerably less than excellent. So I've stuck with what you, ha what you had on the screen, Abraham and Sarah's journey of faith, and added a subtitle, There's Hope for the Rest of Us. Abraham and Sarah's story is found in the book of Genesis, chapters 11 to 25, with other bits and pieces throughout the Old and New Testaments. In the interest of time, I am going to skip major sections of the biblical account in order to focus on the crux of the litany, that of their faithful journey into the unknown. Also, we will need to save for another day discussion of a number of contemporary social, cultural, political, moral issues that cry out from the story. We're going to limit ourselves to tracing the geography of Abraham and Sarah's journey, and more importantly, the development of their faith. I will then suggest some tentative conclusions with regard to how these ancestors in faith might influence our lives today, and then open the floor for discussion. You may want to be thinking about your own journey in the Christian life. How did it begin? What has been its process and its progress? And where is it heading? I'll begin with a quick overview of the whole journey on this map. And you might want to turn over the first page of the handout and look at a version of the map that may be easier to read, particularly for those of you toward the toward the back and the sides. <laughs> uh, the journey begins in Ur of the Chaldeans, which uh, you'll find about midway down on the right side of the map, uh, then proceeds up, up the eastern arm of the Fertile Crescent via the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley, then down the Jordan River Valley in, uh, to the Jordan River Valley in Canaan in the western arm of the Fertile Crescent, further down through the Negev Desert to Egypt and back again to Canaan. There are stops along the way at Haran in the north, Shechem in the west, Bethel and Ai, Egypt again back to Bethel and Ai, Hebron, and some wandering throughout Canaan. As we proceed, it may be helpful to flip back and forth between the slide displayed on the screen and the map in your handout. Now for a few details. Abraham was born in Ur of the Chaldeans, a Sumerian city in southern Mesopotamia, the land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, which constitutes the eastern arm of the Fertile Crescent, known as the Cradle of Civilization. Ur was located at what today is Tel al-Mukayyar, an archaeological site in southern Iraq, about 200 miles south of Baghdad. Ur was a center of polytheism. Terah, Abram's father, who was 70 years old at the time, gave him the name Abram, meaning high or exalted father. 
When he came of age, Abram married his half-sister Sarai, meaning princess, who, as it turned out, was unable to conceive children. Get the irony there. It's tricky to discern when and where God called Abraham, Abram to the journey to the promised land. In the 11th chapter of Genesis, there's no, men no mention of God speaking to Abram. Instead, it states that Terah, his father, took Abram, his son, and Lot, his grandson, by Abram's younger brother, Haran, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and presumably a whole household of servants and droves of livestock, and set out on a lengthy migration, intending to go to Canaan, located in the western arm of the Fertile Crescent, a trip of well over a thousand miles that would have taken many months. They probably followed the northwesterly course of the Euphrates River in order to avoid having to cross more than 500 miles of desert. It's unclear why, but when they arrived at Haran, a city at the northern end of the Fertile Crescent in present-day Turkey, about 600 miles from their point of origin in Ur, and still more than 400 miles from their intended destination in Canaan, they pitched their tents and settled down. Some have speculated that because Terah was clearly the, in charge of this expedition, Terah took Abram, that God's call to leave Ur and go to Canaan came first to Terah, but he was too ensconced in polytheism to fully follow the call. However, two other Old Testament passages and one in the New Testament indicate that the initial call to Abram came while he was still in Ur. The first is found in the book of Joshua in his last speech to the people of Israel prior to his death. The second is found in the book of Nehemiah where Ezra the priest recounts, excuse me a minute, I'm gonna fix something. Maybe I'm gonna fix something, there we go. Where was I? Nehemiah, where Ezra the priest recounts the call in a prayer during a worship service following the completion of the reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem. And the third occurred in the book of Acts, in Stephen's speech to the Jewish council prior to his martyrdom by stoning. I've included Joshua and Ezra's statements in the handout so you can read them later, but I will read the most explicit statement by Stephen. Quote, the glory, the God of glory appeared to our father Abram, Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran, and after his father died, God removed him from there into this land, that is Israel, the, the formerly Canaan, in which you are now living. It may be that the Genesis account, which is not specifically contradicted by Joshua, Ezra, or Stephen, is describing the first leg of the migration from Ur to Canaan in a way that reflects Terah being the head of the family. 
Or it may be that God called both Terah and Abram, and that Terah fell short, but Abram continued to follow God's call. Be that as it may, the first mention of God's promise to Abraham of the promised land took place in Ur, and it was reiterated many times over many years with greater and greater specificity. And this is the call from, uh, from, uh, in, that occurred in Haran. The first re reiteration was in Haran, and it includes a promise of becoming a great nation and being blessed and being a blessing. Quote, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We can imagine Abram feeling conflicted. It seems like we just pitched our tents. It's hard to pull up stakes and be on the move again. But God promises to make me a great nation and that all the families of the earth will be blessed. It fits my name, exalted father. But what about Sarai, childless Sarai? Nevertheless, God said, go, and Abram went. Lot, Abram's nephew, went with him, and Abram took Sarai and their whole household of servants and livestock and headed towards Canaan. When the entourage reached Canaan, they stopped at least briefly at Shechem, a city in the present-day West Bank, a territory in dispute between the Palestinian Authority and Israel, thus one of the issues that's crying out to be discussed, but no time. It was here that the Lord appeared to Abram and confirmed the promise he had made in Haran. Quote, to your offspring I will give this land. And Abram, quote, built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. This represents a significant turning point in Abram's experience of God being a far cry from the polytheism of his childhood and young manhood in Ur. As numerous commentators have pointed out, however, although they had arrived in the land which God had promised, Abram did not take possession of the land. Instead, he and his party trekked further to the hill country be between Bethel and Ai, a relatively short journey of about 20 miles which nevertheless would have taken several days. And they continued to live in tents. There he built a second altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Again, after what was perhaps just a few days or weeks, the scriptures state, quote, Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev, which is variously understood to be the desert or the less fertile land or sometimes simply the south. At this point in time, famine in Canaan drives Abram and Sarai and their large household into Egypt. In the interest of self-preservation, Abram passes off Sarai as his sister. She was his half-sister, but that's not quite what uh, he was trying to say. When Pharaoh realizes the deception, he expels him from Egypt, and Abram 
and Sarai returned to the hill country between Bethel and Ai. It is significant to note that apparently Abram didn't learn anything from this experience because the scriptures record that he later tries to pass off Sarah again as his sister, and again he gets caught. Nevertheless, when they arrive back at the place where he had built the altar, he again called on the name of the Lord. Following a dispute between Abram's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen, presumably over grazing land and water, Abram lets Lot choose to move east to the Jordan Valley, and he remains in Canaan. Then the Lord said to Abram, quote, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved to Haran, Hebron, excuse me, about 30 miles south of Bethel, and built a third altar to the Lord. After this, quote, the word of the Lord comes to Abram in a vision, and he pours out his heart to God about being childless and that his only heir would be one of his servants. God responds by self-identifying as the one who called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. In other words, connecting the dots, connecting the disparate events of the past decade or so, reiterating his promise of a biological son. The Hebrew is explicit, quote, what will come out of your own loins, end quote. And in response to Abram's plea for reassurance, God confirms it with an elaborate sacrificial ceremony. He reaffirms that Abram will have countless descendants and foretells the 400-year captivity in Egypt and their ultimate possession of the land that was promised. And the scriptures state that Abram, quote, this is the famous statement, believed the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And God made a covenant with Abram, specifying the extent of the land, uh, the land of promise. Quote, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt, the Nile, to the great river, the river Euphrates, and specifying the peoples that his descendants would be replacing. Ten years after their arrival in Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, still childless at the age of 75, becomes more prominent in the story. She urges Abram to take Hagar, her Egyptian servant, as a second wife to produce children for her, a practice that was probably common in polytheistic or. Abram agrees, and Hagar becomes pregnant. Apparently, Abram's faith was such by this time that he believed his son would be biologically his, but not necessarily Sarai's. Hagar looks on Sarah with contempt, provoking an argument between Sarai and Abram, and resulting in Hagar fleeing from Sarai into the wilderness. In the wilderness, she encounters the angel of the Lord who sends her back to Abram's household 
There, Ishmael is born when Sarah is 76 years old and Ab Abram is 86. 13 years pass. Abram is now 99 years old and Sarai is 89 and they are raising 13-year-old Ishmael. I don't know how similar parenting customs are of adolescents are in, in uh, ancient Mideast and, and the United States of America, but that sounds like a big challenge. But we'll have to leave it for another day. And the Lord appears again to Abram. I'm going to read this extended passage because in a sense, this is where it all comes together. You can follow along on the screen or your handout. Quote, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, quote, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram or exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, father of a multitude or multitudes. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations before he has a son by Sarah and himself. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God proceeds to establish male circumcision as the sign of the covenant between God and Abram and his descendants. Then God turns his attention to Sarai. Again, an extended passage. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Not sure the significance of this, because both Sarai and Sarah mean princess. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? It's unclear to me whether Abraham's previous act of falling on his face was a sign of faith and worship, or as is the case here, uh, was it a symbol of frustration and disbelief? Be that as it may, Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which is from a Hebrew word meaning laughter. God has a sense of humor. 
I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant to, for his offspring after him. God then assures, then assures Abraham that he has heard his plea for Ishmael and that he will be blessed and fruitful also, but that God would establish his covenant with Isaac, quote, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And despite the expressions of doubt, Abraham demonstrates his belief by obeying the instruction that every male in his household, including himself and Ishmael, be circumcised. Shortly thereafter, the Lord appears to Abraham yet again, this time in the form of three male travelers whom he welcomes in the Middle Eastern tradition of providing strangers a meal and a place to rest. In turn, the Lord, in the form of the men, tells Abraham that when they return at the same time the following year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah, eavesdropping in the tent, laughs to herself. And the Lord, again in the form of the men, asks why Sarah laughed and said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah lies, saying, I did not laugh. And the Lord confronts her again. No, but you did laugh. Then the men leave. The next year arrives, and sure enough, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham, Abraham a son in his old age. And Abraham called his son Isaac. The end of a wonderful story. Many years in the making, Terah names his son Exalted Father, and Abram marries Sarai, who turns out to be incapable of conceiving children. But when Abram is 75 years old and Sarai is 65, God promises to make them a great nation. And a quarter century later, the birth of Isaac makes this possible. But the story isn't over. God tests Abraham's faith yet again. Take your son, he says, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. Again, we can imagine, but in this case, barely imagine Abraham's anguish. My only son? God knows that I love him. What about Ishmael? Sarah never liked him very much because he regretted having Hagar to, giving Hagar to me in the first place. Why did we have to send them away? Wait a minute. Human sacrifice? I thought we left that behind when we turned our backs on polytheism. But God was faithful to our family over many years even when we had a hard time trusting him. But again, God said go, and Abraham went. In the interest of time, I won't recount the story. You can read it for yourselves in the 22nd chapter of Genesis. Suffice it to say that as Abraham raised the knife to slay Isaac, 
God provides a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place, a powerful story of substitutionary atonement. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews says, quote, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. However, in similar fashion to my earlier comment concerning heroes of faith, I wonder how clearly Abraham understood resurrection, or whether this was to some degree a retrospective rationalization. The writer of Hebrews defines faith as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, end quote. And I think it was Francis Schaeffer who, evoking a scene of a multi mountain climber lost in the Alps at night, said that, quote, faith is a step in the dark onto a rock. So what can we learn from Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in faith? I want to end these thoughts by proposing several conclusions, which may turn out to be truisms, stating the obvious. First, the Christian life is a journey beset with ups and downs. Few, if any, of us are called by God to leave our family and our country and to migrate to a foreign land that is completely unknown and many months of strenuous trekking away. And fewer still are promised in return that our descendants will be numberless and will, and will be the foundation of many nations. And I'm pretty sure that nobody here has been asked to sacrifice a child as a burnt offering to the Lord. But we are called to a life of faith, to daily tasks, some with significant, albeit unknown, consequences. And we frequently encounter obstacles that challenge our faith. Next, all of us, perhaps to varying degrees, have become too comfortable living in suburban North America. We seem to have forgotten the old bluegrass gospel song, the world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Or perhaps we've enjoyed singing it without fully appreciating its message. Put it, to put it another way, we no longer live in tents. Third, God loves us, sometimes in spite of ourselves. Think of all the foolish and sinful things we do. Think of all the things that Abraham and Sarah did, lying in order to preserve their self-interest, laughing at God, trying to take control of their own lives, somehow believing that they knew better than God. And yet God continued to reiterate his promise of land and descendants. 
And Abraham and Sarah are listed in the book of Hebrews as heroes of faith without an asterisk to call attention to their foibles. Fourth, God communicates with the people of God if we are able and willing to listen, whether it is through scripture, visions and dreams, or a still small voice. Fifth, God does not necessarily promise all people of faith large tracts of land or that kings and nations will grow from us, but God does promise to bless us and calls us to be a blessing to others. And every day, we need to ask God to help us figure out what that means. And finally, God plays the long game, to say the least. But he always keeps his promises. At least three decades elapsed between God's initial instructions and promises to Abram in Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans and the birth of Isaac. And the instructions and promises were reiterated numerous times with greater and greater specificity. Speaking of the heroes of faith, again, the book of Hebrews tells us that, quote, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Perhaps the elapse of time between promise and fulfillment was intended to grow Abraham's and Sarah's faith, and so may it be for us. I'm going to blow my nose now. <laughs> Janice uh, suggested I have a tissue which would be less obtrusive than my handkerchief. But there you go. Thank you. I want to open the floor for discussion, but before I do, I have a belated confession to make. In case you have not been able to surmise this already, I rarely, if ever, have a clear sense of God's call in advance of taking the first step, and sometimes many steps, on a journey, regardless of how big or small, short or long. I pray, we pray, Janice and I, we regularly study the scriptures, sometimes we consult trusted friends, and then we launch out. All, of, all this to say that I tend to recognize God's fingerprint in my life more clearly in retrospect than in advance. My hunch is that I'm not alone. So as we launch into a bit of a conversation in the, oh my, about six minutes we have left before the witching hour. Um, where were you when God called? What did it look like? How did you respond? Um, big calls, small calls, does anyone want to share part of your Christian journey, your development in faith? And as I used to say to my students, this is like tennis. The ball is in your court.
Yeah. Well, I'll share a little story because it gets to the main question I have about this. So I, I bet you, I would agree that the toughest sort of crossroads for us in life was the decision of whether to leave our very comfortable situation in Maine and come here about seven years ago. Now, this was a, a cushier call than April, right? It was like one really comfortable, sweet spot, another really comfortable, sweet spot. Yeah. Um, but the challenge and what struck me from this is the difference in the situations of us hearing from God and Abram, right? Yeah. Like presumably Abram literally and probably physically heard from God, right? God probably spoke to him. He probably heard God, right? And, and that's the challenge. It's like, we, for us, how do we know? But on the other hand, it struck me as you told the story, what did Abram know of God, right? Like, who did he even think was talking to him? Right. Right? Like, you know, we taught in the, uh, I taught last year in the um, you know, Little Kids Sunday School, and we always talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's how they would always get motivated. Remember, he's the God that did all this right. for your ancestors. Well, of course, Abram, yeah. what does he know? So I, I literally don't, at least so, like, what struck me is the contrast of, I don't know if I hear God's voice, but I sure know a lot about yeah. God right. from my own life, but also right. from my life in the church and the litany of the saints and it's just an interesting contrast. Yeah. We go about it very differently. So you, you share some of my uh, discomfort as to how what this actually looks like. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. So look at the other way, Abraham lived in an era where you know patronage and hierarchy and lords and vassals and all that was very well understood. Where if someone more powerful than you, who has authority over you, speaks to you, tells you what to do, you just do it. Mm. Right. So, Go ahead. Where did I miss? Okay. I think there must have been some knowledge of God in the area because we have Melchizedek as an example. Right. Yeah. Running around somewhere. <laughs> Very mysterious. Yeah, I stepped over. He was so mysterious. Uh, he's labeled, he's, he's called not only the king of Salem, ultimately Jerusalem, uh, but also the priest of the Most High God when... There's no priest. Yeah. There was no priest.
stop. And what I'd like us to do is to end in the same way that we began by uh, quoting, reciting together the first line of the All Saints Litany together. For Abraham and Sarah, our ancestors in faith, and all who journey into the unknown, trusting God's promises, thanks be to God.